Hello, everyone. Welcome to Midwestern Marks. My name is Eddie Smith here with my friend and colleague, Carlos Garrido. Um, we've been asked uh, quite a bit, quite a few times, especially on our TikTok, to do some sort of podcast. Um, so that's what we're experimenting with here, experimenting with the format. Um, to, we're going to start with a top five. Carlos and I have both compiled a top five list of our top five American radicals, American communists, socialists, union leaders, um, abolitionists, things like that. Um, and then this Sunday, we're going to have a, a, a live interview with Thomas Riggins, um, a retired uh, philosophy professor who's come aboard with us as a writer. Um, just to pick his brain about all the knowledge that he has. Um, so we're going to um, have that coming up Sunday, and we want to bring that to people's attention um, before we get started here. Uh, and also today is a historic day for all leftists, um, a historic day for anybody who cares about anti-imperialism, and a day that really should honestly be a national holiday. But we're just going to leave that on a cliffhanger, and we'll talk about it later. Let's jump right into our top five list. So, Carlos, I'll let you go first. Uh, hit me with your number five and why you picked them and what they did. Okay. Um, so I think we could do, like, we each go five so that I'm not just saying my five. I think that'd be a, a good idea. So right, my number yeah. five, five, five four, was Thomas Paine. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm digging back on this one. Um, Thomas Paine was part of the, the early uh, generation of revolutionaries. He was an English-born uh, American, and he had ideas that, I mean, till this day, if he was proposing them, would be considered socialistic. Um, at the time, he wasn't explicitly a socialist or anything, but um, he had ideas about distributing land, um, limiting inheritance of wealth. He was... Uh, a great critic of, of sort of the irrationalities that come with capitalism. He called it civilization. So um, there's articles where he's like, you see the, the indigenous don't have the absurdities of having like luxury, luxury in one place and then misery in another. Um, that's something that's unique to civilization. Um, so again, he uses the term civilization, but we can interpret it as, as capitalism. Um, so he was one of the very, very early critics of the way capitalism was, was formulating itself. Um, and he proposed what could be called some form of agrarian socialism um, with land distributive policies and stuff. Um, and that's why, that's why I have him as, as, as number five. I think he's very important. Um, and he's perhaps the first and, and most consistent radical in our tradition. He was super anti-slavery he even has articles where he's like how was the west able to get slaves from africa well they sold them a bunch of booze um and they corrupted the communities and then they were able to after they put them against each other then they were able to um to start having uh the communities that they allied with uh kidnap other uh, uh other folks from other tribes and and make them slaves so he was honestly, perhaps the most consistent radical in, in that period. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my number five. Just a, another quick comment on Thomas Paine. Um, you have similar ideas to Paine later on in the figure of uh, George, um, who wrote uh, Progress in Poverty, who is, uh, some say that was the most translated or read book um, at the time 
it inspired figures like Marti, Dewey, and, and a bunch of other figures. But um, knowing how to contextualize these radicals in their epochs is important because like a figure like George um, and Georgism at his time was already sort of, um, it was too late to have those ideas. We already have an industrial capitalism developing and he's promoting some form of agrarian distribution. Um, but at the time of pain, that was still sort of how the economy functioned, right? It wasn't an, an industrialized capitalism yet. So that's what places Thomas Paine at the heart of, uh, of, of radicalism at his time and next to other sort of uh, radical liberal slash soft agrarian socialists of his time like, uh, like uh, Maxine Robespierre and, and some of the other French who he also knew because he was active in the, in the French Revolution as well. So a uh, tremendous figure and, and one we, um, we should be teaching a lot more than, right? Mm. We really limit our study of him to, uh, to common sense and uh, we really have to read more because he's honestly a brilliant. Yeah, he's like, he's one, and I'm sure this will be a theme with all of ours. It's like, maybe you're taught about Thomas Paine in history class, but you're 100% not taught the radical history, you know, um, which is, which is, you know, uh, a, probably a theme here, at least with my list is a lot of these people are were praised, you know, are praised for maybe what they did in terms of civil rights activism, um, but you're never taught they were staunch uh, communists or socialists or radicals um, like Paine before, you know, the ideas of scientific socialism even existed. Um, so I have maybe not a similar figure for my number five, um, kind of though, a figure that's probably less taught though, people probably don't know who this guy is, um, Huey Long, the former governor of Louisiana, um, also known as the Kingfish. Uh, he was assassinated um, for his populist views. And <clears throat> Huey Long was a critic of FDR to FDR's left. Um, so I remember learning about Huey Long in um, my American history class. And they said, FDR, after the Great Depression, wanted to strengthen labor because he saw what happened to workers and how they were devastated. And he thought, Oh my goodness, capitalism, um, unregulated capitalism clearly doesn't work. Um, we need to make concessions with the labor movement. We need to make concessions with the socialists and the communists. And Huey Long was saying, if you don't change the mode of production itself and move towards socialism, eventually the capitalists are going to undo all the gains that labor makes and you're going to end up back with this unregulated corporate um, capitalist system with endless wars going on. And I remember hearing that before I was even a socialist and being like, hmm, that guy was kind of right. So I like to bring that up as an example to, um, you know, and, and obviously we're trying to make any kind of gains we can for workers right now. So that's why we end up pushing for a sort of social democratic person like Bernie. But ultimately, um, if you allow private capital to exist, it's going to grow and it's going to eventually crush labor. And that is what Huey Long was arguing during the Great Depression. And he was right, if you ask me. Classic, yeah, good. Um, so my number four, again, I think, I don't think many people would know who this is, but Orestes Bronson. He comes from the tradition of the left transcendentalist and he's a labor radical. He's inspired 
um, by by Jacksonian uh, principles of democracy. Um, he's what's considered a Jacksonian radical Democrat. And um, the thing about him is that he has a sort of radicalization that's kind of a roller coaster. So <laughs> he literally like takes up big old dip at the end of his life falls into Catholicism and becomes like the most reactionary person ever which is like usual of people that fall away from a certain belief end up being the most extremist against the beliefs that they were right holding the most resentment um resentment <laughs> shave it whatever um but uh yeah so uh, Bronson's ideas were were quite interesting um so the following ideas I'm going to say from him were like at the height of his radicalism. He was a staunch critic of wage slavery. Um, he was one of those that felt that uh, their, the first revolution was not enough. There needed to be a second revolution because you still have tyranny and privilege. It's just in the factory. It's not just political privilege of the aristocracies and, and stuff. Um, so he promoted something uh, like a cooperative society that uh, worked more so in terms of regions instead of like national sorts of uh, uh, nationalization of, of, uh, of industry and stuff like that. But um, he had at, at one point, um, he was an abolitionist at heart, but um, he tactically thought that the nor Northern labor should side with the Southern plantation owners um, because the Southern plantation owners are seen as the key sort of enemy of the Northern industrialist. So it was sort of a reactionary position. And, um, and you know, it's funny, like for the people that call Marxism like class reductionism, um, if they were in that position and you were to tell them like, what would be the Marxist position here? They'd be like, oh no, um, it'd be class reductionist, it'd be this. And what they'd be pointing at would be like sort of the Bronson position, um, which is funny because Marx takes a completely different position. But um, yeah, he was, he was a critic of abolitionists, but he felt that, um, that, that you had to liberate also um, Chattel slavery, just that uh, wage slavery and its liberation should come first. Um, like I said, he ends up falling into this horrible, um, conservatism, but at the height, his ideas were um, were perhaps the most radical we had had at the time, because it was a form of socialism that was no longer looking to escape society, but it was looking to confront the class struggles present. Um, even though he made many, uh, many mistakes and divided uh, the, the struggle of, of African liberation and, and black liberation from the labor struggle, He's still one of those that, that we should um, bring back and, and, and read his work and, and be fluent in, in who he was because um, he sets up a tradition for, for labor radicalism in the US. That's, that's very um, interesting. And I think that we have uh, quite a bit to learn from. I'm trying to keep cool. these short, but it's hard to not go on there. Yeah. But, yeah. I know, I know it's hopeless to ask you like, hey, let's keep it short. It was worth a shot. <laughs> um, let's go. Uh, my number four, I cheated. I did two of them. Um, uh, I did Malcolm X and Angela Davis because 
they're two folks who were civil rights activists um, and their kind of socialist leanings are hidden from us, especially Malcolm X is a really prominent figure when you're taught American history, but you're taught he was solely a civil rights activist and he was clearly a socialist, as was Martin Luther King. But the reason I pick Angela Davis and Malcolm X is because they were like tanky socialists like Martin Luther King would talk about redistribution of wealth and like uh, universal basic income um, which is great but Angela Davis and Malcolm X weren't they meeting with like the they had like at least critical support for the DPRK um, and they were pushing for really radical things and and you, you know the Black Panther Party and, and the civil rights movement and the actual uh, radicals attached to the civil rights movement is one of the strongest movements that's ever existed or um, and strongest parties that's ever existed within the United States. Um, so yeah, we got the chance to teach black uh, labor history um, for, uh, what was it, Black History Month at, um, yeah. at our college. Yeah. So we really got to read up on them and, and their views on economics and, uh, and the plight of the black community in America. And it was really enlightening. <clears throat> and Angela Davis gets a lot of a lot of flack today people call her a lib it's like at the time she was doing her thing in her youth she faced down the u.s government you know um they tried to take her to court and she like went and and like talked her talked her way out of it basically just like stood up for herself um and then malcolm x was of course killed um which is also a theme with a lot of american radicals they're either canceled or they're uh, murdered and, and these days, uh, the left cancels a lot of their best thinkers just for for the heck of it. So kind of went on a tangent there, but there you go. There's my number four, Malcolm X and Angela Davis, some goats. Just uh, um, one of the things that, that's funny with Malcolm X is that many consider him like this weird deviation of like the Black Liberation Movement. And many people think that like the norm was like the MOK sort of Black politics. But it, that wasn't the case. The history of like Black American liberation <laughs> movements is is as militant and and holds similar positions to to um, Malcolm X. So if we're looking at the lineage of the tradition, um, Malcolm X stands there better than perhaps MLK would. Um, yeah, and then that's another excellent figure. Um, so my number three, um, who's another giant in this tradition, is W. E. B. Du Bois. Um, so we're, we're taught and it's, it's generally accepted that those who, who win write the history, um, there's one exception, uh, and, and the exception is the South after the civil war. Um, it continued to have a hegemony on, on how things were told and it continued to promote a narrative that slavery wasn't that bad, that the slaves were considered as family and stuff. And, and W. E.B. Du Bois did a phenomenal job in deconstructing that narrative and in showing the realities of slavery and in destroying the narrative of the Southern historians that was hegemonized even after the Civil War. Um, beyond this, he was a staunch critic of American capitalism, American racism. He has uh, one of his one of his articles, uh, I think it's called The White Soul or something. It's written in 1918. And it analyzes the First World War from the perspective of, of race that I always recommend reading Lenin's Imperialism alongside with that because it really gives you a really nice insight 
um, when you work them both together in terms of the economic and the racial elements that led to the war and the European powers dividing up the world. Um, so yeah, Du Bois is another giant. He joins the party in 1961, the Communist Party, um, and and he's he's definitely the best of, of the best, at least in my opinion, in terms of, uh, of of black radicalism and just radicalism overall in in the U.S. He, um, yeah. Nice. Continuing with the the theme of black radicals, my number three is Fred Hampton. Um, just as a young guy, uh, hearing Hampton's story on Rev Left Radio, which is a podcast we both love, um, they had to stop taking uh, applications to the Black Panther Party when, when Hampton was recruiting for them because they didn't have enough work for people to do. There were too many people who were applying to help out. Um, and, the, and he was 20 years old. And if, if you listen to his speeches, it makes sense. You know, he was just a powerful speaker. Um, and to get so much attention and to, to scare the CIA and the FBI and the Chicago police so much that they kill you at the age of 20, just by sheer, you know, they, they didn't even try and hide it. They riddled him with bullets. There were what, 150 bullets in his room. Um, and this is someone who started the breakfast program. Um, where the Black Panthers would bring breakfast to impoverished neighborhoods and feed the kids and then educate them and read to them. And then that's what he ended up being murdered for. And the CIA also burned the fourth, the fourth floor of the Black Panthers headquarters where all the breakfast program um, information was located. So they truly saw this man as a threat, um, which is why he was killed and I, it's just it says a lot that when you try and feed the hungry people of the country the state comes and kills you um so that's why i draw a lot of inspiration from him and he's my number three yeah he's he did what like the u.s left has been traditionally bad at which is like being able to combine nicely the struggles of like identity and and class um, the sort of rainbow coalition that he did with the young lords and I forgot what the white organization was, was, was tremendous. And that's something that we see that when, when you're able to mix in together the struggles from black liberation with class struggles, that's when the FBI just fucking goes nuts, right? When Malcolm starts talking about hmm. class, boom. Right. When MOK starts talking about class and against the war, boom. Um, so yeah, <laughs> another great figure. Um, my number two, uh, I'm not even sure if he should be on the list just because of his nationality, but it's uh, Joseph Wademeyer or uh, Wademeyer, if you want to say it in German. Uh, uh, he was uh, a one of the 48ers, so 1848, the European revolutions that were popping off, um, the reason why Marx and Engels write the manifesto. Um, he was an active participant, an active soldier, at the time, he started as a true socialist, which is sort of this uh, radical enlightenment um, sort of branch in, in, in Germany. He ends up being friends with, uh, with Marx and Engels through uh, their activity in the new uh, Rheinisch Zeitung, which is a newspaper that they were editors for. Um, and he becomes a Marxist. And when he leaves, I think in the, in the early 50s, um, it's Engels and, and Marx that push him to come to New York because there was a strong immigrant presence here. And, and uh, he comes to New York, 
doesn't like it at first and then falls in love with it. Um, he falls in love with American affairs, with the American culture. And that was actually kind of strange with uh, a lot of the 48er radicals that came to the US. Uh, they still had interest in going back to Germany and having uh, a, a revolution. Um, very few of them actually took uh, the interest of the American struggle as as their own, right? And and Wademeyer was was definitely one of those that was able to do that. And he fought in the Civil War um, with other figures like August Billick and and a bunch of other um, 48ers. So um, he's a real American hero. Um, he used to. I'm pretty sure the first one to bring Marxism over to the U.S. Um, so yeah, I think he's huge for for our tradition that specifically uh, has a a Marxist analysis to it, even though we're based on the American uh, tradition of radicalism. Um, yeah, that's I, I have him in there. I don't even know if he could fit, just because he uh, he basically grew up in Germany and came when he was already an adult, but. Um, but yeah, he's he's an American hero. He fought in the Civil War, um, and yeah, very cool. Yeah, I didn't know that much about him, so um, it's interesting to learn about. I had a feeling you would pick more 19th century, um, and I would do more 20th century, which so far I've been right. Um, and continuing with that, my number two is Williams v. Foster. So I've been studying up on the history of CPUSA a lot. And like I said, we've done a lot of research on the Black Panther Party. And those are the real two parties as far as communist parties in America who had a real influence. Um, and Williams v. Foster was the leader of the CPUSA from 1945 to the I think earlier mid 1950s but as we covered and as our friend Alex the trade unionist pointed out um 1945 and on uh were the was the biggest time or the the greatest amount of strikes in American history um where all these productive industries uh were going on strike um and William Z Foster was the leader of the CPUSA at that time encouraging these strikes um that that was the the biggest point for labor in U.S. history. You know, it had been building um, with FDR as president um, after the Great Depression. Um, but then after the war ended, people were worried that all these jobs uh, were going to go away. And, and you saw all these strikes, which, of course, you know, as Marxists, the real the real power and the real story there is the workers, um, you know, which the workers who went on strike and who organized themselves in those unions are the real number two. But Williams D. Foster at that time was head of CPUSA, arguing for these things, uh, running for president too, I believe. Um, and, and he ran uh, with, uh, I believe he ran with a uh, um, person of color as his VP, which he was like one of the first to do that, of course, you know, in the 40s at a time when Basically, if you had a person of color as your VP, you were probably disqualified or not like legally disqualified, but people just weren't going to vote for you. But, you know, he had the courage to say, this is what's right. And this is what I'm going to do. So, um, yeah, that's my number two. Yeah. And that's the tradition of CPUSA. Like even the Socialist Party, they were segregated at the beginning of the, the 20th century. And CPUSA comes along and, and says, no, um, they do base the uh, the Marxist-Leninist position and include the Black liberation struggle within it better than any other organization that, that we've had, to be honest. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, excellent figure. So my number one. 
that was bad. Can't be a drummer. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> my number one is De Leon, um, Daniel De Leon. He was born in Curaçao, um, and he spends quite a few years in Europe, traveling all over, really. Um, he gets to the U.S., to New York, I believe, when he's 20. Um, either 20 to 22, we don't know. It was a span of like two years that um, that he could have gotten in here. Uh, but um, he learns like seven languages, which is insane. He gets his law degree at Columbia and teaches for a while and then ends up getting a, a lecturer position at Columbia. And through that time, he was like an academic radical. Um, he was a follower of the sort of Georgian ideas that I was mentioning at first. Um, eventually, he encounters Marxism and starts to become more actively militant. Uh, he, uh, so he, I consider him the first American Marxist, um, the, the first person that, um, that spends the most of his life in America who is actively a Marxist, although before you have Frederick Sorge as well. But um, the most influential one is De Leon. And of course, he was active and, and president of the Socialist Labor Party. Um, and he was one of the founders of the IWW. He, uh, he, he was one of the founders in the ideas that uh, you're not gonna do much with craft unions, with unions that keep workers separate and that bosses can divide them based on how they organize themselves, that organize yourself into one big union and you're gonna be a lot stronger when it comes to the labor battles. He made a few mistakes, uh, uh, according to William, uh, uh, I mean, Philip Foner, who is a, a great Marxist historian, supposedly in that late uh, 19th century, the AFL um, had passed a bill that urged, I think, the socialization of the economic sector. Um, they, they had passed like a really radical bill. And then at that point, uh, uh, De Leon takes some of his uh, Socialist Labor Party people and starts his own sort of uh, tangential union um, and it sort of divides the radical elements of the AFL. But overall, the picture of De Leon is great. He was one of the few that were also staunchly anti-imperialist. He was against the, uh, the policy that the US was beginning to take, uh, the expansionist policies. Um, so yeah, great figure and, and one of those that we really have to bring back. He had excellent ideas on, on, on what it is to have a revolutionary ethic, which we know are, are things that Lenin has spoken about. Uh, in terms of the Black Panthers. Uh, Huey Newton has spoken about it with his relationship of revolutionary suicide and reactionary suicide. Um, so he was a very principled man who dedicated his whole life after, after being in Colombia as a lecturer to the struggle. Um, and he's definitely one of those uh, top figures of, of American socialism uh, and, and communism. Nice. I I really liked your list. It was different from mine, as I expected, which is why I wanted to do this this segment here. Why I thought it'd be a cool segment um, because I feel like I learned a lot just from listening to you explain that list. So now it's time for my number one. Um, my favorite radical in U.S. history is Kim Jong Un. Just kidding. I gotta go. We've been going with all these labor leaders and all these people who led um, led uh, labor movements or maybe who were politicians. But my number one 
um, Marxist, the person from America, the person who's done the most for me in developing and how I view the world is Michael Parenti, the um, God amongst men from New York, um, who makes dialectical and historical materialism um, incredibly fun and interesting to listen to. And he doesn't necessarily use those words, but the way he tells history um, sticks to telling the story of class struggle. Um, and he, he tells history in a historically materialist way. One of the best points he makes is when we look at existing socialist societies, when we look at Cuba, we say, look, Cuba is not as rich as the United States. Socialism fails. And he goes, why are we comparing them to what we have, the, the world's largest nation that's exploited half the world for a century? Why aren't we not comparing Cuba to what they had before the revolution? And what they had before the revolution was a military dictatorship with you know, essentially slave labor on plantations where all the money was being funneled out of Cuba into the West. And post-revolution, you have illiteracy abolished, you know, poverty um, uh, shot down, unemployment way down, um, malnutrition way down. Um, homelessness. And then homelessness abolished. You know, of course, the, the gains of the Cuban revolution are you know, endless, you could go on forever. And he, he talks about going to Cuba and he asks one of the, one of the people in, in a smaller town, like, what do you think of Fidel? And they go, Oh, I love Fidel with all my heart. And he's like, why? Um, and the person points to a hospital and he goes, uh, we have that hospital now. Um, before, before the revolution came and built that hospital, we had to travel two days, you know, and usually we would, when we had a really sick person, we'd have to carry them two days. And sometimes they died before we got to the hospital. And Parenti's like, I'm not saying the Cuban revolution's perfect. I'm not saying that Fidel and Che were gods, but you know, the, the revolution that builds hospitals and feeds the people and teaches the children to read gets my support. And it's like, that's the best way to view it. You know, it's, it's people are always like, do you have critical support for so-and-so? It's like, well, all support is critical support because this is real life and there's never been a single human being in the history of um, human existence who's been perfect. Um, and that's how, how Parenti analyzes the world. And, and it's, for me, it's made analyzing geopolitics so simple. Like you don't have to defend countries who support your ideology tooth and nail and be like everything ever that's said wrong about Cuba is a lie, you know, it's probably not, there's probably a little bit of truth in it, but, but what you stick to supporting is building those hospitals and ending illiteracy and kicking out um, the imperialist uh, puppet dictatorship. Um, so that's why Parenti is my favorite. And yeah, that brings an end to our top five. It was an interesting top five. I like your list. Uh, it was eclectic, very eclectic between uh, both of us. Um, <laughs> I, I, if I do the list in like six months, it, it'd probably be a lot different just because of the nature of where I'm focusing my research in now. It's been 19th century. Uh, so that you could probably see that reflected in my, in my list. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, Parenti was super influential for me as well. Um, I remember reading History as Mystery and just being like, holy shit. Um, <laughs> history is like <laughs> one big lie and it's all uh, manipulation and manipulation and manipulation. And, um, yeah, he does, he does bring that, uh, Marxist framework 
in such a common man way uh, where where you just he explains it without like super uh, technical terminology and and in a way in which everyone can understand and make it a, he makes it accessible for everyone and I think that's that's quite valuable. Um, but Parenti is a beautiful segue into our next topic, um, which is Venezuela, the elections, and I think we'll probably talk about the the anti blockade law. Um, yeah, he's a good segue because, uh, like you said, he helps us interpret socialist states in a nuanced way in which we can have critical support for them um, and be realist. Uh, so, uh, yeah, do you, do you want to talk about the, the Venezuelan elections, Eddie? Yeah, yeah. So we've been covering Venezuela. Um, like you said, Parenti is a good segue in the way I try and cover Venezuela is kind of in the style of Parenti explaining how their economy got where they are, where they're so oil dependent um, and uh, what the history of U.S. intervention has been against Venezuela and even what the history of U.S. propaganda has been against Venezuela. And the history of U.S. propaganda has been to um, call the Venezuelan elections fraudulent with little to no evidence. So seeing the Venezuelan elections, which in 2012, former U.S. President Jimmy Carter <laughs> called the most highly monitored elections in the world. Um, Venezuela had their elections <clears throat> and the OAS and the United States shortly after uh, claimed that they were fraudulent. So a month before this, I covered it on TikTok and our YouTube. Um, Venezuela invited the UN and the EU to come observe the elections. They said, all right, every year you say they're fraudulent, um, come observe. And this is not new. Venezuela has invited the UN and the EU for the last, I don't remember, I don't know exactly how many elections, but for sure the last two before this one. And, and both times the UN and the EU decline and then the elections happen and they say fraudulent. Of course, how do you know they're fraudulent if you don't go? So this is what I said in my video. I said, they're gonna say, we're, they're not gonna go and then they'll say they're fraudulent. And that's exactly what happened. So there's all sorts of information you can find online about the Venezuelan elections. Uh, they were actually really interesting. There was low voter turnout. Um, the opposition party boycotted. Well, there was a moderate wing of the opposition party that didn't boycott. And then uh, the, the wing of the opposition that still stands behind Guaido, um, the kind of most far right uh, way out there, pro-U.S. sect of the opposition party boycotted the elections. And then there was just low turnout overall. Um, a lot of votes for the Communist Party, um, quite a few votes for the popular revolutionary alternative um, who are critical of the new anti-blockade law, which is the other thing we wanted to talk about. So uh, the Chavistas, as they're um, a lot of communists and, and old school radicals in Venezuela are disappointed with the um, Peace of, which is the Socialist Party, PSUV, and Maduro and their inability to combat U.S. sanctions. Um, and so Maduro came out and did this new law or passed this new bill through Congress called the Anti-Blockade Law. And the criticism of it from a lot of the old school radicals in Venezuela is that it's a shift towards neoliberalism. So it's a plan uh, to increase privatization in certain areas in order to allow Venezuela to breathe a little bit um, economically and get around the U.S. blockade. Obviously, the U.S. has 155 sanctions on Venezuela, mostly targeting oil, which basically the whole Venezuelan economy is tied to um, based on their history, which is one where they're oil rich and, and British, British 
petroleum and Dutch Shell were sucking oil out of Venezuela for years. Their economy became entirely dependent on oil. It's just a brief history there. Um, so, so now with this anti-blockade law, Carlos and I have been having the discussion of, is this a drift towards neoliberalism or is this a way, an attempt for Venezuela to feed their people that from a pragmatic point of view, we should support. So one of the first things that's happened um, now is, I can't remember the name of the business. You actually knew more about what exactly the industry was, but Venezuela's privatized um, one of their, something in related to the production of farm equipment, which you would think is one they would keep agro, what's it called? It's just called the, agropecuarias so it's just basically part of the agricultural the the part of agriculture that manufactures the equipment to actually be able to do agricultural work um that's part of that's that's part of one of the things that they're um they're going to be privatizing now um but yeah it's an interesting question because i think that uh, we both shared the view when it happened that this was an anti-Chavista move, that this was a folding, a move that folded and that um, that was moving towards neoliberalism. And and I myself, I remember thinking, no, I think the problems of Venezuela stem, obviously, from the blockade. But um, if Venezuela was able to do more and to nationalize more, then um, that that's what the people want, first of all. But that's, that's what would help them out more. But I have come to... I think take a more um, a an approach that thinks with a I don't know how to say it with a better um, having a little bit more faith in in peace of uh, and and in the attempts that they're making to honestly provide for the material conditions of Venezuelans. The thing is that right now with the pandemic and the crisis. Uh, the blockade is trying to strangle countries like Venezuela, Cuba, Iran, more than ever, because it knows that the world is globally weak right now, right? Um, and thus, it is in such a uniquely hard position that when you're in that position, you have to do anything you can in order to guarantee resources to be able to then distribute and have the social programs that you have. It is in moments like that, that ideas are, are, are important, right? But you have to do as a governing body, all you can to continue to provide for the economic needs of, of your people, right? Um, so uh, I, with, with, with some readings of Lenin that I had of, of the later Lenin, the, the stuff he writes in 1921, he faces a similar condition. He just had a couple of years of wartime communism that that weren't necessarily making the material needs of of the people better. They're, they also get invaded by like seven countries, right? Which which never helps. Um, <laughs> but um, but he came to, to this conclusion that there's gonna have to be concessions as long as there's global capital, right? Because you can't feed people off of ideals. You have to concretely feed people. And as long as you have a revolutionary or worker party 
and power that you're fine. It's going to be a risky move privatizing and opening up, but um, it's strategies that you have to try and see how they work, right? And in a in a condition in the condition that Venezuela's in, we're like the other not too long ago they were trying to trade with Iran, and the U.S. intercepted one of the cargo ships. It's like how do you do anything like that? Stole the oil. <laughs> they literally fucking stole a ship filled with oil, um, which is it's literal theft. Like you can't call it anything else, right? Um, when you're in that situation, like what the hell else can you do? I don't think the the privatizing move move is not one that's done for its own sake. But the thing about privatization, and I don't think I don't I don't see enough people talk about this, is that the thing about privatization and when it's done in socialist countries, it's not done because privatization helps create all of this wealth and development and stuff. We've had the quickest development in the 20th century was the Soviet Union and it industrialized through a planned economy. The role of privatization is because it allows you to participate in the global market. And thus, if Venezuela, at least I think, if Venezuela starts opening up certain sectors of their economy to privatization, which I think it's what the, the anti-blockade law is trying to do, perhaps they're hoping to be able to have, uh, to be allowed a little bit more participation into, into global trade and and maybe a loosening of of the blockade but i i don't know what i what i do think is that the peace of does have the interests of venezuelan people at heart um so i do i don't think that they're doing that move as 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 a step towards neoliberalism but it might be a a sidestep a concession that they think is necessary in order to maintain some of the other uh, important social programs and the fundings for those that are what really affects the material life of of everyday Venezuelans. But it's a hard, it's a complicated issue. I mean, I don't know what where where do you stand? Yeah, I'm I like you. Um, and there's a lot of accusations of corruption against peace of, but I don't think what's happened here is Maduro and all the leaders at peace of have all of a sudden said hey we're going to become puppets of private capital i think like you said their intention with the bill is to feed venezuelans because that's always been maduro's intention like the perception of maduro in the west is so um which is really hard to get a, a grasp on who he is because of the propaganda even if you're a leftist you know you you kind of have this view of him as this dictator and a piece of is just this party that he rules over, but piece of is large and it's got a lot of, of people behind it. And then Maduro is a former bus driver um, who, who has like we criticized him for has kind of failed to um, get around the U S blockade in the same way that Hugo Chavez did, but he's not, like some tyrannical madman who's just sitting, um, you know, in the lap of luxury. Like, uh, I mean, obviously he lives better than the average Venezuelan, right? He's the president and it's a really poor country. So the people are poor and he's kind of rich, but the, the moves he's made for Venezuela have never been with the intentions of explicitly hurting people or making them poorer. Obviously he wants to make them richer and obviously the way to do that is to get around the bit, the U S blockade. So 
so I agree that those are his intentions. And, and now what you do is you just, you know, hope for the best, um, continue to criticize and call out U.S. imperialism to try and get the blockade to open up, see if you can get Biden to move on that, which, you know, good luck, probably not, but whatever. And then and then just we'll just keep following the bill. And, and for us, you know, as a as a website that reports the news um, in the West, where not many people talk about Venezuela, we'll continue to cover it and and continue to share that with an audience who probably has read nothing but propaganda about Venezuela their entire life. So, so yeah, I guess that's where I stand on it. Continue to follow it and just hope for the best, like root for them. It's crazy how many leftists in the West, I feel like are rooting against Venezuela. Like they've had all these arguments where they're like, oh, I don't like Maduro. So now they're hoping for it to fail. It's like, why are you hoping for socialism to fail? What kind of socialist are you? Yeah. Pathetic. And that's one of those things where like the, the piece of, uh, I mean, not the piece of the PCV, um, which in English translates to something different, but the, the Communist Party of Venezuela um, and their unification with the other like popular progressive forces. It's like, I, I continue to ask myself, like, is that, is that like an ultra position to, that they're taking? Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, it's, it's another thing is that we're limited because we, we are here, right? We're not in Venezuela either. Um, so we're not able to do like this, uh, the same sort of work that we would be able to do here, right? The same sort of investigative work, even though we are getting sources from there, right? Um, but it's such a hard position, but yeah, I, one of the funny things that I, like, obviously I think we agree that whatever the case is, is not like Maduro opening up the economy to private capital so that he can get richer with his family, which is like what the Gusanos in Miami are saying, right? It's funny because the other day they shared a picture of Maduro's kid with like some designer shoes. And they're like, oh my God, look, these shoes are like $2,000. And this is the salary of a Venezuelan and in like 10 years or some dumb shit. Um, and what's funny is that like that same group of Miami people, a lot of them are, are what are called like sneaker heads. And uh, like they, they buy a bunch of Jordans and all the new dropping Jordans. And to be fair, it's okay for them though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but they support capitalism and capitalism is when no sneakers, when no sneakers. Yeah. That's yeah, it. I mean, communism's when no sneakers, no sneakers. Sorry. But they'll like, these are the, I, I went to school with a lot of these people and these are the type of people that like, if, if someone's wearing fake Jordans, they're going to look down and be like, Oh, the strap is twisted. It's fake, you know, and they'll bully a kid for having like fake Jordans or something. And what they don't realize is that like Venezuela, Colombia, this whole area has like bootleg markets. So the designer shoes were probably just bootleg shoes, but they don't do the same investigative work that <laughs> to like Manolito, who just bought a pair of fake Jordans and is wearing them to high school to fucking this kid's son, because they don't want to, <laughs> that they're probably fake shoes too. Um, so you see like people wearing like Gucci leotards and shit. It's like, what model of Gucci was that? They've never issued <laughs> like that. <laughs> Dude, dealing with people from the Venezuelan opposition, I don't know if I've talked about this on YouTube before but, or on the podcast or whatever, but I've talked to you about this. It's like dealing with Trump supporters, except for all they say um, to ver that, you know, verify every argument they have is I'm from Venezuela and you're not. But they, the stuff they argue, it's stuff like that. And one that comes to mind 
is this guy tags me in a video. He's like, oh, I'd like to see Eddie Lager Smith defend this. And he's like, Maria Chavez, the daughter of Hugo Chavez, is the richest woman in Venezuela. She has like this absurd fortune. Um, I, I Google it. And it was some weird right-wing media outlet went to a bank and requested um, to see her net worth from the bank. And the bank apparently gives them a piece of paper and they read it. That's the source on this. And then, of course, um, Igor Chavez's daughter saw it. She's like, the bank, you know, that's like illegal. The bank just doesn't give people's net worth to media outlets. And and she sued them for defamation because it wasn't true. And she won like a million dollars because they defamed her. And that was the thing this guy is citing. And it's like, it's such nonsense. And when you're in America, it's so frustrating because I see people in my audience taking that guy seriously. And I'm like, this is the equivalent of a Trump supporter. But uh, just saying total nonsense in in support of his opposition party and against Maduro. But but people can't see it because they have no idea what's actually going on over there. (laughs) I remember I got one argument one time. That was like, well, all of the people of the Cuban Communist Party eat like lobster for breakfast. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, first of all, that's bullshit. Second of all, second of all, look at the inequality that they are focusing on. A guy that eats lobster, as opposed to a population that eats, you know, regular food, whatever, like soy, uh, ground beef was what the worst that they would get in the 90s with uh, Liureta. But they completely ignore a society where there's like duper billionaires and people that are homeless. That inequality doesn't matter. What I care about is the fucking lobsters that the Cuban Communist Party members are eating. That's the real (laughs) inequality right there. It's like, yeah, it's infuriating. It's hilarious. It, um, yeah, definitely. Definitely have enjoyed meeting the far right sectors from all over the world as a part of, you know, um, as a part of growing this, uh, this website here, meeting the Venezuelan opposition people, um, Hindu nationalists, uh, Israeli Zionists, whole lots of fun people with a lot of great opinions and a lot of opinions on me and Carlos. Um, so let's segue in that we talked about it at the beginning. Today's a historic day, you know. Historic. It's it's actually, I was saying it's a historic day and it should be a federal holiday. And people in my TikTok comments were telling me it's also the anniversary of Sandy Hook. So that's sad. That's not a historic day. That's a very bad day. Um, but it, it is also the history of the day that Muntadar al-Zaidi threw an Iraqi journalist, took off not one, but two of his shoes <laughs> and threw them at George Bush as George Bush was giving a speech. Um, I believe it was, is 12 years ago today. So it would have been well after the invasion of Iraq, well after um, Bush and all his cronies were exposed as liars. Um, and, and I just want to say this is a heroic day, one. And two, the people who lied us into that, that conflict, which is why this man threw his shoes, he was probably, I mean, imagine being from Iraq and then coming to the U.S. and knowing what George Bush did to your country and he's just walking around and people are praising him, treating him like he's someone to be respected when he's a murderous, murderous war criminal who invaded a country to maximize oil profits. 
And people from his administration, folks like John Bolton and Elliot Abrams, are now still around telling us we need to invade Iran because they have WMDs. And people are falling for it. And I have liberals in my TikTok. Of course, you know, we know liberals love to support imperialism saying, oh, Iran is a theocracy. Look at their nuclear program. Don't we have to do something? No, no, we don't. (laughs) We actually don't have to do anything. As long as it's identity diverse imperialism, um, those right. But yeah, it's it's such a legendary day. Um, it's just if, if we have Christmas for the birth of Christ. We should have at least something in that level um, for this man who, like a Lazarus figure, took off both, not one, both of his. <laughs> We're talking so much shit. All right. This was all an ironic part of the, of the segment. And, and we hope to have made you laugh. But um, yeah. all right. Um, we wanted to bring up something that's very important. We have a we're going to be doing a talk next Sunday at 12 p.m. Central Time with Dr. Thomas Riggins. He was a philosophy professor for many years in the New School for Social Research and in NYU, um, two of the most prominent philosophy uh, programs in, in the country. Um, so he's going to be giving a talk on the relevance of Lenin today, which I think it's, it's a very, it's a very important topic that we must address because even in academia, you have like Marx is even somewhat tolerable, but as soon as you bring up Lenin, it's like, everyone gives you, you know, it's like, what's going on? What are you doing? Huh? Get out of here. Um, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) But yeah, he's he's a, he's very important, and and we, I am of the belief that we must read Lenin. That Lenin's insights are uh, incredible, and that his advancements to to Marxism are are incredible and and have to be noted, um, and we have to study Lenin seriously. He was, um, he's a very important figure. Hell yeah. Um, so yeah, we're gonna have uh, that next week, and what we're doing is, um, we're allowed. We're we're setting it up as a lecture format. So uh, we're gonna have an audience. Uh, It's gonna be done through a Zoom call. So if anyone that is listening to this now, if you're listening to it ahead of time, like obviously if you're listening to it a year after it releases, don't email me. But um, (laughs) if you're listening to it in the right time, you can email us at midwesternmarks at gmail.com. We'll have it linked under and we'll send you the Zoom link for the lecture once you go in the lecture, you can have your camera on, you can have it off, whatever, but we will mute you um, and we will silence your right to speech. <laughs> we'll, we'll mute <laughs> you, but you, um, you're encouraged to provide uh, questions on the chat throughout the lecture or afterwards, and we'll select a few questions and have a Q&A at the end of the lecture. Um, so it should be a 20 to 30 minute lecture and then a, a 15 to 20 minute uh, Q&A session at the end. So it's going to be a fun event. We hope to do uh more events like this and um yeah yeah, i want i i just want to say i'm really proud of this event we're putting on obviously you and me both have a lot of respect for dr riggins um probably i mean we both just have a lot of pride that he's on our site you know he's really smart and you know he's he's been doing this for for forever so we want to pull from his knowledge and share that and I just, it made me think of Nathan Robinson, the editor of what is it, Current Affairs, and he's a frequent contributor to Jacobin. 
I think just a couple months ago, he was saying Lenin's a mass murderer and nobody on the left should study or read Lenin. Um, clearly never picked up, you know, admittedly has never picked up Marx or Lenin. So I'm really, really happy that we as a, as a left-wing outlet in America with some sort of attention on us can be providing an alternative to that hogwash that you're getting from um, petty bourgeois folks like Nathan Robinson. So, yep. Absolutely, I agree. Um, so yeah, uh, remember that if you if you want to be included into the Zoom call, please email us at midwestremarks at gmail.com uh, and, and we'll send you the Zoom link. Uh, 12 p.m. Central Time next Sunday, which is, let me just give you a date uh, for those watching. It's the 20, oh no, it's this Sunday. Okay, uh, the 20th, December 20th. I was about to say, is it Christmas? We yeah. do it on Christmas. I mean, we could talk about Lenin on Christmas, right? We could. Yeah. Around family. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, you know, you have the, the sort of American uh, memes. It's like, don't bring up politics in the table. Like in our case, it's like, don't bring up Lenin. Um, you can bring up yeah. you can bring up social democracy, but no actual socialism or Lenin. Those are the rules at my table. Yeah, yeah. That's those topics are off limits. <laughs> but when I go to the kids' table, dude, it's it's game over. I'm just like writing down diagrams, teaching them about exploitation and, and imperialism. Like while the parents aren't looking, my five year old cousins and stuff, they're all woke. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's been a, a very pleasant talk. Um, uh, we hope to share the audio as well on, on podcast networks. So if you want to start listening to our podcast, um, I'm going to say something that's very cliche, but you, you could listen to it wherever you listen to your podcast. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. All right. Thank you. Peace. Peace.